Welcome to the Brave Feminine Leadership Podcast, where we share stories from amazing leaders just like you and me. We break down myths of leadership, imposter syndrome, and we ask what brave feminine leadership means and does it need to change? All of these interviews were originally recorded in video format. Follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Brave Feminine Leadership for news on when new video series will be dropping. It's wonderful to meet you. Drop me a note if the content resonates. Melissa at bravefeminineleadership.com. Let's get brave. Welcome to this interview series on Brave Feminine Leadership. I'm very excited today to welcome to the conversation Natalie Charles. Natalie's the principal of Mentone Girls Grammar School in Melbourne. And uh, I can say not only is she a wonderful person and a fantastic educator, um, from personal experience, I also know that she's a lifesaver to sleep deprived mothers. So welcome, Natalie. Uh, lovely to see you again, Mel. And yes, those were the days when we were bringing up our babies in the same street and sharing trade secrets. Absolutely. So, Nat, I'm so thrilled that you've um, joined this conversation. And I just wonder, as a starting point, for anyone in our audience who hasn't had the pleasure of coming across you before, who is Natalie? What do you do and, and what are your passions? Yeah, thanks, Mel. So, I mean, my passion, I have to say, is a little bit dorky, but it is education. Um, and when people say, you know, what do you do to fill in your time? I, I do a lot of reading. Um, and my entire life has been around schools, um, which in many respects reflects, if you like, the, the value proposition that I had from my parents, um, but also just you find that path and you can't quite move away from it. Um, so to that end, I think, you know, I've, I've always sort of been around them. My dad was at um, Geelong Grammar for a number of years as head of science. I grew up learning how to drive in the, um, you know, around the back blocks of Corio. Um, watching him give, you know, 200% during term time and then going on to university and then pursuing what I thought was going to be a lifelong career in publishing and finding that that wasn't who I was at all, that in actual fact my love of, of literature and storytelling and actually needed a, a different, better sort of audience and so I ended up doing a, a deep bed and fell in love the minute I walked into a classroom and haven't looked back. So, um, yes, this is my first experience of principalship commenced that last year at the you know beginning of January just as the news was coming out of Wuhan and um, yeah I don't think anything could have prepared any of us for, for what was to come but uh, yeah I think you just lead a community in the way that you'd want to lead a family with the, you know honesty and care and transparency about the decisions that you're making and where you need to get to but um, pretty uninteresting woman in many respects I would suggest and uh, yeah, but doing very much what I love. And I keep looking out the window. If you see, notice that, it's because the girls are out there. And, um, yeah, that's where the energy sits. So the girls are back, which is good. We go into 2021 in a bit of a different space. And congratulations on, you know, what a baptism of fire that must have been, 2020, um, as your first year. Yeah, it really was. And what was wonderful, Mel, was that we do so much talking in education, particularly around these 21st century attributes and um, constructing concepts of, you know, needing to be creative, critical, collaborative thinkers, when in actual fact, when the 21st century came crashing in to their lounge rooms and bedrooms and kitchens, they were all ready. 
those girls and in fact those those kids that we've all got rose to that occasion brilliantly and we were the ones who were scrambling to provide the um the medium the facilitation etc and i think that um, education like health really led the way in that regard but i was so proud of the way our young people everywhere rose to that challenge, rose to the mental health issues that it really um, provided them with, because schools are communities, do you know, and we, we learn with and through other people, not with and through a screen necessarily. But um, they, yeah, they remained true to what they knew they had to do and, and got out the other end. So, yes, it's something that, that, that they will take with them for the rest of time, that's for sure, that they rose to something that they could never have seen coming. No. Um, and that's got to feel good. Absolutely. So, Nat, I was hoping this morning we could split our conversation into kind of two spheres, if you like. One is very much around you and your journey and your experiences um, as a leader um, and as a female leader. And then secondly, potentially um, move towards the educational um, sphere that you operate in and how we might be helping our girls and preparing them um into the future as well and maybe if i kick off with a couple of um statistics and if i just reference some notes i've got here just as a starting point but you know as a backdrop to this if i just think in an australian context you know there's 12 and a half million females more females um, than males some of the research we see coming out or a lot of the research says we seem to have stalled as far as females um, gaining additional sort of visibility in leadership roles across a whole range of different areas. I see research that talks about males are four times as likely to ask for a raise. Um, and when women do ask for an a, a raise, they tend to ask for sort of 30% less. I couple that with, um, you know, a lot of conversations where the things I'm hearing come out is that women often self-reject. So before, you know, rather than putting themselves forward for an opportunity, they often self-reject or they wait for some form of external validation to step forward. And with that sort of context, I guess as a starting point, if we can go to Nat and your personal journey, do you identify with any of those kind of feelings of perhaps not feeling good enough or self-rejecting at various points? Have you ever had any of those experiences on your journey? Yeah, I have, Mel, and I continue to have them. So I think what we're talking about here is that sense of not feeling as if you're good enough. Mm. Um, and I have had that throughout the course of my um, life. And in actual fact, when I was asked to join this series, I thought, of about three other principles that I would have referred you to in a heartbeat as opposed to you speaking to me. Um, and when I spoke to our student leadership group at the beginning of this year, I said to the girls that you will hear that voice in the back of your head um, and it's just as noisy for you potentially as it is for me. So I think that we all know what we're talking about um, and that hasn't ever gone away. Um, and I'm not quite sure where it comes from. I certainly know that in my experience, um, I've not ever asked for a pay rise. Um, I've never put myself forward for jobs. When in actual fact, I started being, you know, gaining the attention, if you like, of, of big recruitment companies and they're looking for, for school leaders, I would often tell them <laughs> that I wasn't ready and that I knew a couple of other people who were. Oh, wow. And 
and and it's the truth. I mean that that still sits there. So there is that there's that sense of knowing where you sit in a hierarchy, mm-hmm. but then also having a sense of where other people might see what, what you could offer is the thing potentially that we lose sight of. Um, I think that there are a number of, of, of reasons for it. I think that in the first instance, if we think about a number of our girls and the way in which, you know, body image plays into it, that from the very, very young age, I used to feel as if I was um, physically inadequate, that my nose was too big and that I had to make sure that I got in on those conversations about this, either to make fun of it or to suggest that it meant nothing to me. So it, you may, beginning from a very young age, you start to realise that you don't fit a particular um, sense of what it's meant, what you're meant to look like as a woman, and that that then becomes about as you grow older, in a professional sense, of you not necessarily being good off, good enough as that woman. Mm. Um, so yes, that's been my experience um, throughout the course of my life, and it hasn't gone anywhere. I've just learned to better suppress that voice, to learn more, work harder, read wider. And then that becomes the compensation for quietening what goes on in here. I love that. And I just love the thought of, um, you know, you role modelling and that conversation that you had with the girls at the start of the year around that voice is just so normal. I think the more we normalise this and the more people hear that, you know, my perception is that you're Mm. an incredibly successful leader, surely you don't feel that way. Um, you know, I think if we can break those myths down, um, it brings me to a question I did want to ask, and you've probably in part started to address it, but, you know, there will be people watching this. There'll be people out there who um, are your students or other students or, um, you know, potential future female leaders as well in, in the education space or otherwise. And they'll be looking at this and thinking, you know, I could never do what Nat does. You know, I could, I could never be Nat. She's, she's just exceptional. How would you respond to that? Yeah, I would. I would suggest that that's another part of those of that paradigm of of thinking that I couldn't be that. Or I think that women spend a lot of time comparing themselves potentially to others and thinking that they're less than. Um, and I would say from my own experience that um, you, you end up doing most of it really well. Do you know that I, I would suggest, and it's not a cliche, that the, the part that doesn't get done well is where you look after yourself, mm. um, that a lot of the time is spent, rightly so, and I feel very strongly about that as a leader, that you, it is my job to look after that sacred community of, of young people, particularly of kids. Um, and I take that really seriously and of the staff. And then, of course, you know, if you've got a family and you've got children, all of that is brought to bear. Um, and to that end, I think that it's about being able to know where you can call in your best sort of support, what the limits of your capacity are in terms of when it gets too much and realising that you've taken on too much and, and pulling back a little bit. But um, I would suggest it's just about finding your purpose and then to that end, once one finds your purpose, um, giving over to that and all the energies flowing into that that you can kind of find a way to make it work. That's been my experience. And every little bit in, in, from a career perspective that I've taken on stretches you that little bit more. And that stretch in provides, I think, enormous flexibility and enormous potential. And so you might feel to start with that sense of, oh, it's too much, but it, it ends up being okay. And thus far, the ceiling hasn't fallen in, do you know? Um, and I, I do love that. I love knowing what's behind me, what, what I've come from, 
and therefore thinking I'm bringing that to where I might be able to get to. Um, and that's doing this job better. It's um, doing a whole lot of other things better. But yeah, I would say to those women and girls who are watching, just keep doing that little stretch, that little stretch like a muscle, and you'll find that you've got infinite capacity and that like a gas, you expand to fill whatever space you put into. That mm. would be my experience. Um, when have you felt most vulnerable? Um, I have felt most vulnerable, not necessarily in a professional sense, but I would suggest that my vulnerabilities would sit in with you know, with my family. So if things aren't working well on the home front, um, if my children, I have two children whom I adore, particularly with them, if that's not working, I, I find it very hard then to be able to um, find my equilibrium. So once they're okay, and I work very hard to make sure that's working, and I don't mean in a functional sense, I mean in an existential sense, that they are who they need to be, that they feel loved, that you know you can rise and fall with regards to all the things that adolescents experience but my vulnerabilities sit very much around my my home life i'd suggest um and so you work to make sure that that's okay and then i find that in a professional sense um the vulnerability would be uh, again that sense that you're not doing enough or that there are things that you don't know or that you um yeah uh insufficient to the task and to that end you just have to keep working and learning more yep as you've said so um nat i wonder if we might turn our head a little bit towards the educational space and um and interweave it a little bit but one of the things that um you know i'm, I'm talking to a lady um louise adams louise is the ceo of oricon oricon's a large engineering firm and Often when we look at the gender salary gap, one of the reasons um, that, that, is, that explains that gender gap to a certain degree is that some of the higher paid jobs are in the STEM area of maths and science, and we see girls stopping maths and science at various points. Louise talked to me about uh, her grandfather and her grandfather engaged her very early on by watching slideshows of bridges. And it was bridges in Bangladesh and and the river was flooded and people were impacted every year. And, you know, she said to her grandfather, how do, I, uh, how do I fix that? And so for her, she was very much engaged in a, in a purpose um, early on. And I just, I just wanted to get your reflection on, um, you know, your experience with girls, with those subjects and engaging girls in those subjects. And, and I'll stop there. Yeah, and I'd say very clearly, I mean, that's the most beautiful analogy you could possibly hope for, which is to ask a, a young person and a young girl to solve a problem, do you know? And I think girls are extraordinary problem solvers and, and we carry that as women into our, into our lives and then applying that across to, um, you know, industries and areas where that high-level problem solving can be utilised at a, you know, pretty extraordinary level is exactly what Louise is talking about. Um, I'd suggest, again, and it comes back, you can't be what you can't see. And certainly exposing our, our girls to paragons of excellence um, in the sciences, in maths, and ridding them of that sense that starts quite early for them, that I, I can't do it, or that it's hard, the problem's there, and I'm not quite sure how to solve it. Um, and then they 
walk away from it because, again, it's that sense of self-doubt, I'll never get there. So for giving them strategies and, and a means by which to come at things from a variety, I think, of different um, perspectives in, in maths, in sciences, et cetera, actually invites them to hone their problem-solving technique and then to just simply see the discipline itself, math, science, in actual fact, um, is an embodiment of, of all that they're able to, to be able to sort of do. So I would suggest that um, girls' schools have a really significant role to play in that area where we've got, you know, experts and scientists and exposure to, you know, um, labs and all the rest of it that enable them to have a degree of familiarity from a very young age, that enable them not to have to compete um, as they do with boys who are natural risk takers and naturally will try things a couple of times and then, you know, it'll get it right. Whereas girls tend to sort of take on that perfectionism streak from, you know, quite a young age, and I think of my daughter. And you, you want to disconnect them from that. Do you know that it's okay to, to keep trying and to make mistakes? And certainly I think that um, if I see what happens for our girls in STEM here, um, it's about allowing them in their own context to be, see themselves as problem solvers, to have them exposed to higher order thinking across science and maths, and to be able to then make that leap, as Louise is talking about with her grandfather, um, in an applied sense to the real world. So there's lots of work to be done there, that's for sure. Um, and again, I think it's about disconnecting sort of stereotypes about who does what and when. Um, and you even think of the COVID response here. Most of it has been male-oriented. The voices that we've seen solving, you know, COVID have been the Premier, you know, the Chief Health Officer, um, the, the logistics, the contact tracing. Um, it'd be great to have had more women front and centre in that regard, you know, so that we could um, provide that as a model for our girls as far as how systems work and where maths and science play a really um, valid role in, you know, keeping things safe. A lot of the um, research talks about at school and university, girls are outperforming boys mm. academically. Um, and then things come to a, a bit of a halt somewhat and that um, that changes when they hit the workplace. Have you got any thoughts on that or any sort of theories on that at all? Yeah, and certainly the research is clear about that happening. Um, and I think that, that to a certain extent, that's when the protective forces that schools, you know, offer girls um, kind of fall away. And to that end, it's an interesting um, case study that, that things do decline post-school for a number of really high-performing um, girls in another environment where all of a sudden things aren't as they, you know, that they're not necessarily reaching their, their potential in that regard. I think a lot of things come into play in that. I think that we know that retention at, you know, first and second year university in a number of contexts is very difficult for, for girls and for boys or for young men and women. Um, I think that we have to do more at university to do what we do in schools, which is to make explicit um, the, the celebration and the championing and the advocacy of first, second, third year, you know, um, students at, you know, in, in, in undergraduate degrees so that they are receiving a similar sort of nurturing that they might have done at schools. Yeah. Um, I think that that is an area that we've got a lot of work to do. And, and in, in some respects, it's around sort of longitudinal tracking. Do you know what's happening to our girls once they leave our schools? 
what are the universities doing in this space? Because the same forces and factors are still in existence. And just because the girls are now 18, 19, 20, doesn't mean that anything necessarily in an environmental sense has changed for them. So I think it's really vital that the same energy and focus and um, resourcing that we put in to the secondary sector is then applied at the university level in a really sort of strident manner to continue to champion the, um, the place and the potential of girls in you know, a variety of different disciplines and areas. What about workplaces, Nat? You know, when they when they get there and um, you know, where the research starts saying that women won't put themselves forward for opportunities and they're seeking external validation. How can we how can we help? Is there anything that can be done now where you are to to help with that? Yeah, you know, I think it's twofold. I think it's our job in, in, you know, girls' schools and in schools in general to be inviting our girls to be champions of themselves, to find their voice early on, to challenge and to dissent and to debate um, and so that they are equipped when they get out. But I also see, Mel, that there is a really strong place, and I would say this with all great respect and having worked in a boys' school for a long, long time, that our boys' schools need to rise to that challenge, do you know, to be able to see things when they do become leaders of industry, when they are on these boards as directors or as chairs, when they are, you know, CEOs of these companies, to be mindful of what the female experience will be and what role they can play in championing that advocacy at that level. Um, so I do see girls' schools taking that and really running with it to empower their girls, and that's our, ta our tagline, empowering girls, and helping our girls have a voice um, and wanting that voice to be heard once they leave our gates. I'd love our boys' schools to be able to see they have a role to play, particularly given the disproportionate number um, of leaders of industry, politicians, et cetera, and so forth, who are, who are men and therefore have, a, have a, a role to play in making sure that they are um, finding space and um, context for the women around them. I think that that's just as vital. Any ideas on how that could happen, what that could look like? Yeah, I think that for, and again, you know, there's a place for boys and girls schools. I can see very clearly, um, both as a mother and as an educator, the place of single sex girls schools in the 21st century, perhaps even more than ever. Um, because I think that our girls are entering a world that, you know, I talk about all the time that simultaneously seeks to empower and disempower them, to celebrate them and to body shame them. So the girls exist in a genuine paradox where they're pulled like this about what it means to be a girl and a woman. And so more than ever, I like the idea that we're able to not cloister them, but to, to bring them together in a community that enables them to, to be who they need to be, whatever that looks like, devoid of these voices of social media and of the male gaze, um, et cetera, and so forth during the course of these really formative years. Um, to go back to your question, I think that boys' schools can play that role by being able to include more female voices in their leadership. I think that that's essential. And I look around at, um, you know, the number of gorgeous um, single-sex boys' schools, you know, for instance, in Melbourne, and they have a largely 
male masculine hierarchy, which is as it should be in boys' schools, but I do think they need to make the space for the female voice and perspective um, because our experience is a beautifully unique one and uh, it's vital that that's understood and heard for the boys that they're leading um, so that that becomes part of their formative experience as they're growing older. I know the work of people like Marie Crabb in... Um, you know, with regards to pornography and, you know, the let's talk porn. I, I think that there are a variety of different ways in which we're able to invite the boys to come into conversations that will have a very real and formative impact upon themselves and their understanding of, of girls and what it might be like to be in relationship with a girl mm. or what it might be like to advocate for a girl or to employ one as a woman, do you know, so that it, it is a dialogue. Um, and I feel that the girls' schools at the moment are leading that dialogue with their girls. There is work to be done. Um, I'd love to see our boys' schools championing something of that at their end, that's for sure. I love what you said also around, um, you know, with the girls not cloistering them but creating a community um, and, and a connection point. One of the things that is really interesting when people um, end up in the workplace is so many people have the perspective of networking as a challenging thing, um, as a, you know, I don't want to do that, it's, you know, it's awkward and it's uncomfortable and all those things, but more and more... I'm hearing from people who've been successful and they've been very focused and um, very deliberate about building authentic relationships. Can you see, you know, is there more space for schools to help in that regard potentially? Oh, absolutely. And I think of, of the way in which our, you know, first, second, third year out graduates want to come back in. Um, to remain networked both for the school, but then to offer their experience um, and their networks to the to the year 12s and then the you know first year out. So I see that in that regard, it is about forming really authentic relationships. So it's not transactional. I think that that would, um, yeah, that's that's not good for anyone. But certainly engendering and nurturing a network of of um, of people, of organisations, of shared interests of conversation around big ideas, schools can play a very important role in that. And having a sense of ourselves as a school as being networked with girls' schools in partnership with tertiary, with industry, with academics in terms of, you know, what are the big ideas and trends from a global perspective, that's all very, very similar. But in the first instance, I really like being able to nurture those sort of multi-generational networks mm -hmm. that the girls can have once they leave here. At all times, I think, Mel, we're looking to provide um, a protective mechanism um, against what the world will throw at, you know, our students when they leave and having authentic relationships in a strong network around you is one of those protective mechanisms post-school when you're in the university sector and just starting your, your job that can enable you to have a foundation upon which to feel a little bit stronger and a little bit more um, sure of yourself. So I think that they're very, very important. Um, you said earlier you can't be who you can't see. Mm. Did you? Who did you look to when you were young and, and growing up? What role models were there for you in this space? Yeah, so I had my mum and my mum was a stay-at-home mum and a single mum. Um, dad's 
gorgeous and you know um you know they were divorced when I was nine but my mum was the one that I would look at for all of her strength and it's strength in actual fact that you want to be able to emulate it's not necessarily a a career it's um you want to be able to see possibility um and in mum and in her modest quiet working three jobs kind of a way wow I saw enormous possibility I saw a woman who didn't think and knew quite clearly that she didn't need a husband um we lived in a really modest sort of um house uh in a very yeah sort of down and out part of Ballarat when I grew up mm -hmm. um but we never ever felt that we were either poor sounds like Dolly Parton yeah. either poor or going out no actually and um and I remember and I'm going to share this because it really doesn't matter I was vice captain of my school mm -hmm. and it was Christmas time did this huge Christmas drive of you know um tins and cans for, for families that didn't have much. And I led the charge on that as vice captain um, at Loretto, which is a beautiful convent Catholic school in Ballarat. And you can imagine my surprise and disgust when school had finished and a basket, the care packages that I'd mobilised and, you know, whipped into a frenzy, one arrived at my front door. Wow. And for two days I went into this paroxysm of shame um, and mum said, no, that's okay. She said, we'll find someone else to give it to. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, so I, I, all I'm saying is that I think that, um, yeah, I, I knew how important education was. I knew that reading was a, a big part of, of what was in our house and how we'd spend our time. And I knew that possibility and potential and strength were embodied in my mother. So I never had a sense of being terribly frightened about things because of her. I didn't know that I'd end up doing this, but I did know that I would be okay whatever I ended up doing because she was okay. Does mm. that make sense? Yeah, incredibly yeah. powerful. Yeah, it really is. What do you hope for your beautiful daughter? I don't want to leave your son out um, because, you know, this we're not exclusively focused on females. It's just that's the question in front of us right now. But, you know, what do you hope for your gorgeous daughter? Oh my goodness! Um, I hope that she. I hope that she feels this. I hope that she has strength. Um, and it, it's it's always a moving question because I think that we know that life is not going to necessarily be easy. Life will be life, and the human condition being what it is, we will all you know have to rise to it and learn to take our struggles and our losses and um, all the things that wound but grow us you know, with us. Um, so I want her to have a sense that life is long, that she will be all in all sufficient to engage it and that she needs to bring all that with her. And I think that for all the women watching that we know, you know what it is that I'm talking about in that regard, that you do bring it with you and that it does make you stronger and more vulnerable and therefore I think way more empathetic than you could ever imagine. So... That's what I hope for her, that she lives a life where she is learns to silence the voices better than I've done, but that she knows that struggle is a, is a singular part of what it means to be human and that she's got the wherewithal to be able to engage that and to bring it with her, to not push it back or to not let it define her, but to bring it to bear into who she'll become.
Mm. So it's kind of long-winded and a little bit, but that's actually what I hope for. Mm, it's amazing. Nat, you're, you're helping shape girls, um, mm. you know, not just for tomorrow, you're helping shape uh, females into 2050 and, and beyond. You know, when you think about, you know, the world is changing really rapidly and things like that, but when you think about, you know, your hope for what that might look like, you know, in 20 or 30 years' time, do you think about that? Oh, yeah, all the time. And I think I've got a couch here that I'm looking at now. I think that my job is to prepare the girls that sit on that couch for 2041, literally, um, because that's when they will be working or they will be mothers. If I think of the girls out there, that'll be their time. And what is it that we will have done to make their time the best time possible for them is something that, um, yeah, sits with me a lot of the time. Um, and you, you, the future only ever comes one day at a time, but certainly finding a way to allow them to orientate themselves when all the traditional markers have gone. And I talk about that quite a bit with staff. Do you know, there's a saying that these girls weren't just lost at sea, or this, this generation wasn't just lost at sea, it was born at sea. And um, I can't remember where I read that, and it really resonated. And I think, therefore, that in being born at sea, one has to find markers that are internal, do you know, that the, the cosmos might be up there and you might be able to plot it that way, but in actual fact finding, you know, sort of an internal orientation becomes the thing where once it might have been church and family and, you know, newspapers and um, the, the things that we'd hold dear and truthful, those things now have sort of taken on a lesser, um, a lesser potency in a young person's life. So allowing them to have internal markers, I think, is the key for our young people so that they are able to navigate their way in a world that, um, yeah, is, is, yes, it's rapidly changing, but the human being remains, if you like, um, skilled in a way to be able to address it. But who we are, um, I think, then becomes... I think the who becomes where all the power and the potency sits. And so never forget, yeah, not around the, the skills, they'll get the skills and they'll they'll navigate their way through um, various jobs and all the rest of it. But being able to orientate themselves um, in a sort of an ethical, moral capacity, I think is where it all sits. I've got goosebumps thinking about that. Um, and, uh, you know, I want to, if I think back to kind of where we started part of the conversation around, um, there are things that need to change structurally. And quite a lot of the conversations I'm having are talking about, you know, some people who are creating passion-led businesses that are tackling the structure. Um, an example is um, Fairvine Super. So I'm speaking to the founder of Fairvine Super which is a superannuation fund set up to address the gap for females. Um, because I think it's something like females retire with 42% less in their super fund right now than males. And this is tackling the model that kind of results in that as an outcome. But very much the other side, as we said when we started, is about mindset. And I just, I love that, that, you know, this generation is potentially born at sea and they're having to learn early on um, you know, where to look for those markers to kind of orient themselves. I just think that's so powerful in that. Now, can I ask you about, um, you raised it a little bit earlier, can I ask you about social media? Yeah. Oh, what can I say? Oh, my God. Um, 
obviously a wonderfully powerful force for good when we're, you know, setting up our, you know, likes about the environment and climate change and all the rest of it. But my God, I think of, of our young girls and the way in which it has contributed to a generation who feel that they are not good enough based on how they look, who feel the need to construct an image of themselves um, that's socially acceptable, um, who have their bodies, you know, shared across multi-platforms when it all goes awry. Um, yeah, a social media for me is a is a very um, vexed part of what it means now to be an adolescent. And yet for boys and girls, but particularly for girls and their focus on body image, mm. uh, I've asked my daughter to, to get off it, get off Instagram and all the rest of it, and that in itself causes enormous consternation in the household. She herself has said that it, it is populated by, you know, the self-promotion, a particular way of, of, of being and looking. Um, it invites a collectivised response to everything, which I think in itself is the death of um, sort of intellect and academic um, rigour. Mm -hmm. Social media, I think, contributes to what I see um, a lot of the time with girls, and that's their internalised violence, um, where they're eating disorders, where they're school refusing, where they're self-harming, just because it comes from a place that tells them that they're just not good enough. Mm. And I don't necessarily know how we how we engage that powerful juggernaut, but I do know that we have to. Um, and if you take it that, that step further, you think of the way in which, and I'm going to come back to pornography, the infiltration of pornography in our young people's lives is um, at pandemic proportions. You know, Marie Crabb would say 97% of 12-year-olds have seen porn and that that's the primary way in which they've understood what, what a, a sexual relation looks and feels like. And for girls particularly, if you want to think about social media and you know, all the rest of it, it's so dangerous um, when we know what the, you know, the, the powerful triggers behind pornography are and that it's made largely by men for men and yeah. the place of women as it's presented in those sorts of relationships is, is diabolical. So there's lots of work to be done because there's a lot of ways in which women are constructed or positioned to be a particular way and girls at their most formative years are exposed to this and then shape themselves to this either in relationships um, or just in, the, in their own presentation as a means of being able to um, feel as if they're, they're acceptable. So there's, yeah, there's enormous work to be done in that space. And I think that schools and families and communities have to be brave enough to take it on. Mm. That's for sure. To, to disrupt those forces. And they're, they're largely commercially based um, that tell our girls that they've got to be a certain way. And social media, I think, in that regard, um, yeah, needs to be taken on. We, we ban the use of mobile phones here from, you know, the, during the school day. And I see that as just going, ah. So there are no alternate conversations going on as, a, as just the ones that we would have with each other. Yes. There's not this going on during the course of the day, which in itself can be very damaging. I've worked in other schools where girls have come rushing into my office because they've opened up you know, something in period three and there's some sexually explicit image either of a boy that has been sent to them, you know, unsolicited or yep. of themselves that they've shared in an intimate moment and that's now gone around, period three in the middle of English and there it is. Wow. So what we see and then what they're accessing and exposed to are two diff very different things and as adults I think we need to man up 
and really be prepared to engage those forces because they're dangerous. Nat, um, you know, from your perspective, our sort of final question um, that I'm asking everyone in the series is, you know, what does brave feminine leadership look like from your perspective? What does it look like today and does it need to change? Oh, I think the word brave is the big one. And I think that um, in the last, say, decade and even the last couple of years, that sense of what it means to be brave as women has really shone through. That it's, it's, and it's, feminism has always been brave. And I think bravery is taking on something that you're not quite sure how it's going to end up, but that, you know, deep down, you've got to find your voice, you've got to take action. So brave feminine leadership um, I think is going to be the next wave of feminism, to be honest, that we're allowed to be feminine, you know, not like men, not as men do, but to find our own context in our own way. So I think that brave feminine leadership will be about opening up more space for the female voice, the female experience, um, and to be able to have that affirmed in a way that's got real meaning in organisations, in schools, so that we're not necessarily always running another sort of race that has us in a race that's, you know, largely, you know, patriarchal masculine one, mm -hmm. but that we're entitled and empowered to run our own race, um, the benefits of which will be for our, our daughters and, our uh, you know, our granddaughters, that's for sure. So I think that um, I think of the girls that we're, educating here. Um, I know, as your viewers do, what some of their concerns and issues and obstacles are going to be. They're not going to go away, but talking about them, and I think of hashtag me too, just simply opened up space. Yeah. And I think that brave feminine leadership will look to open up space wherever it can for voices and experiences and perspectives that otherwise may not have been heard before. And that's the way, again, that I'd say I'd love to see our boys' schools come to the party in that regard. Absolutely fantastic, Nat. Um, I have loved the conversation with you and I'm sure that our viewers will have loved that conversation too. So thank you so, so much for, for joining and agreeing to be part of it. Thank you for ignoring that little voice just, that, that suggested three or four people who might be more appropriate to have the conversation with. I can't think of a single person who would have been more appropriate. It's been an amazing conversation. Oh, thank you, Mel, and thank you for what you're doing in providing space for voices. I think that's really important. Brilliant. Thanks so much. Hello there. If you're enjoying the podcast and would love to accelerate your own growth and leadership, then head to bravefeminineleadership.com forward slash brave tips for your gift from me, where I've captured all of the amazing tips and themes that came out of these conversations. I hope they help you feel your brave rising.